0: I had the absolute pleasure of showcasing the amazing story of Manny Medina, the co-founder and CEO of Outreach, for my inaugural episode of the Revenue Engine podcast. Outreach is the sales engagement company that is valued at over $1.3 billion. Yes, that's billion with a B, making it one of the most recognizable unicorns in the market today. But it wasn't always like this. In our discussion, Manny shares his story of how the company was just a few months away from closing its doors and how he turned it around to be the company that it is today, truly powering the revenue engine. He also shares his philosophy around product differentiation, customer success, and much more. Aside from Outreach having an amazing product and brand, Manny himself is well known for being an inspirational leader, not only within his own company, but across the industry. In fact, he was most recently recognized as one of the top CEOs by Comparably for 2020. His support for diversity and inclusion, especially for immigrants, women, and working parents is one of the areas I most admire about him. Manny's authenticity resonates throughout our discussion, and many times you'll hear me get caught off guard as the fangirl that I am and be a bit tongue-tied and lost in his story. So please, forgive me for some of the awkward pauses in the discussion. I'm beyond thrilled to bring you this story. Take a listen, and be sure to hear the answer when I ask him what thing he wished he knew earlier or would do differently if he could do it all over again. And I promise I didn't ask him to say that. Absolutely thrilled to be here today with Manny Medina, the co-founder and CEO of Outreach. Outreach is the sales engagement company that has raised $289 million in funding and has a valuation of over $1.3 billion, making it one of the most recognizable SaaS unicorns. So welcome, Manny, and thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me. This is great to be the inaugural guest. To your yes,
0: <laughs> I love it. Thank you. Yeah, so when I was first asked to start the Revenue Engine podcast, you were literally the first person I reached out to to ask about being a guest. You know, there were a handful of, you know, really inspirational leaders that immediately came to mind, and you were definitely one of them for a number of reasons, which I'd love to chat about today. I did want to congratulate you on your recent ranking of one of the best CEOs at a high at a large company. I saw you incomparably ranked number 16 amongst all the CEOs, and it was definitely no surprise to me.
1: Wow. No, it was. Thank you. Thank you for acknowledging that. It, it was a surprise to me. Uh, it was also <laughs> a surprise to me that we're called large <laughs> a large company. I never considered myself a large company.
0: That's right. That's right. It was and pretty the, shocking. It's amazing, too, because it was rated, obviously, by employee feedback, so that's always a testament to the type of leader that you are. So Thank you. So, let's get into the, some of the questions. So, you know, first things first, right? When you and your co-founders originally started working together, you were actually focused on solving problems for recruiting versus for sales. So I've actually read that the company was in business for a few years, and literally you found yourself with just a few months of runway left. So can you take us maybe just for a few minutes, take us back to that time and, tell us, you know, tell me what was going on, you know, through your mind and kind of what led to that pivot into sales automation.
1: Yeah, the what what happened was that we tried to solve a problem that we thought we can solve with technology. And that was the recruiting uh, aspect and sort of the, the finding the right match for you. And we realized that recruiting could not be solely solved with technology, that you actually needed a component of sales and marketing and sort of demand generation to, to also, to also generate you know generate the demand for um, employers to meet the, the the candidates and for candidates to actually meet more employers, and we were not very good at that aspect of it, and we found ourselves running out of cash in 2013 at the end of 2013, and and it, it was interesting because it was so precarious in that we we tried different business models, you know, tried SaaS, tried um, you know some low recruiting fee, and then we ended up. Switching everything over to just you know Finders Fee, um, just like any other recruiting agency. So it was this one time in which we thought that we we're gonna you know bring in a deal. We didn't bring the deal, and and that forced us into thinking, all right, you know, what are we gonna do? The deal they didn't come through. We don't have that much runway left. So we 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 looked introspectively, and we were very honest with each other. And we're like, look, we're not very good at sales and marketing, but we have to get good if we're gonna get out of this. Mm-hmm. And and we we dove into our funnel and what was generating the little cash that was coming in. And we sort of quickly resolved that we just needed to generate more meetings. So we had two sales reps and we realized that if we, if we can just 10 X their production and make that production converted in the next two months, so we can actually write this out. And so we decided to do that. And we, we, we broke that into pieces and we realized that, you know, uh, our value prop was right because, you know, there's tons of recruiters out there. They're all, you know, very successful ones. So it wasn't that, it wasn't that the market wasn't big it wasn't our value prop is right it's, it's just that we're not reaching to enough people in a in a way that is making sense to them so that's when we came up with the idea of creating so sort of two workflows one that would personalize communication at scale we did that we did that by putting humans in the in the in the, in the loop meaning mm-hmm. imagine so we built this. This really, um, you know, I mean, now it sounds brilliant, but back then it was really strange. Imagine your <laughs> screen split by half, and half of it, I have all the information about you, Rosalind, and I have every, and then I have a, a composed window that has sort of my value proposition, and then as a writer, I'm, I'm, word, I'm to come in and write up my subject line and my first, in my opening sentence. That's all I'm personalizing. The rest mm-hmm. of the email is sort of like canned. But by doing that, you drive two things: you drive a good open rate. And then you also drive a good engagement with the body of the email. And what we do is we, we start cycling in um, people who had English majors or were or were or, or literature ma- majors or people who were just writers that were trying to make it out in the world. And we would pay them twenty five cents to fifty cents an email, and they would generate about ten to twenty emails per hour, depending on their speed and their and their and their quality. And that would go out to people and and you know in the form of a personalized approach. So you will get these emails and these emails were you know out of the blue. They were cold but they were, you know, well composed with a lot of information about you that were interesting to you. So mm-hmm. the reply rate really went through a roof because of personalization. And then we built this other follow-up engine, which is what our reach is right now, um, that would sort of follow up on the email automatically if the person didn't respond with, you know, something that looked semi-personalized. And all of a sudden we went from, you know, from, you know, from having a couple, just a couple meetings a week per rep to literally very little, like 20 meetings per rep per week to about 10 meetings per day per rep. And the reply rates, you know, went from, you know, a a couple percentage points to 40% reply rates. So we were swimming in meetings. They were all qualified. And our reps were not able to process those meetings that quickly. So what I tried to do is then, because, you know, at this point, a month has come by. And, you know, we have one month left. (laughs) Right. So we decided to go out and try to sell the meetings. So I went to recruiting firms, agencies, and companies that were growing fast and I said, "Hey, what about you know me generating meetings for you for your recruiting team so that you can take that pipeline and turn them into into, into employees. And that's not a model in recruiting. So you know that's a model in sales, but that's not a model in recruiting. So recruiters look at me like a half a head. And they were like, "How are you generating these meetings?" And I said, well, you know we build this engine that personalizes it reaches out, whatever. And they were like, stop. I want to <laughs> buy the engine?" So, wow. you know, that's what led us to pivot the company into that engine. And our first two customers were luckily uh, Cloudera and AppDynamics. And we both sold into, into the recruiting teams. And the recruiting teams only had, I don't know, like five, seven seats. So it wasn't a big deployment. But they were like, hey, you know, this could be used by our sales team. And they have hundreds of seats. And I think they could benefit from this technology. So we went and said with that with the, with the sales team and it turns out they had exactly the same problem except that they were getting paid for it. You know, recruiters don't get paid, you know, for, for, for a recruiter, for, you know, for budding seed, but sellers do get paid either per meeting if you're an SER or per opportunity created and closed if you're an A. So um, it, it was a quick transition from then on in terms of moving from where we were to selling into sales. And then... You know, we use, you know, we we have built already an integration into ATSs and it was easy parlayable into an integration into a CRM. And before you knew it, you know, the word sales stack, quote unquote, became a, a thing that people would compare and we became part of a sales stack conversation. And so I always say that in, in startups, you, you have to, there's, you know, there's one portion of, of skill and three portions of luck. And that's part of our luck. <laughs>
0: Wow. That's amazing. And this, the opportunity in such a short span of time, you quickly pivoted sort of what you were thinking you were doing into an opportunity that now has led to, you know, years later, a billion dollar company. It's an amazing story.
1: With um, a lot of bumps in between. Yeah. <laughs> never <laughs> never right. a straight shot. That's
0: right. Um, so you talked about sales stack. So, you know, sales engagement, you know, obviously is not, you know, necessarily a new term by any means. Um, but I think that it's really an emerging market category, right? It's gaining recognition as well as a lot of traction, especially when it comes to data, you know, analytics and insights, you know, because those all continue to be very, very critical in order to predict revenue, right? right? And I saw as part of your recent um, Explorers, um, Outreach Explorers Winter, your product announcements that now you have buyer sentiment analysis added yep. to your your functionality as well. Yep. You know, as the leader in this space, you know, what have you been seeing... You know, in terms of trends in the market, right? How have you seen sort of when you pivoted into this kind of sales stack um, industry? How have you seen it evolved, and you know, where do you see it going?
1: That's a that's a really good question, and and it's hard to. So, it's, let me start by saying that it, the market is still evolving, and we're in we're in the in the very middle of, middle of it right now. There is not. I don't know what the end state will be because. Um, you have both the forces of you know people wanting to consolidate tools and innovation happening at an even faster clip that sort of creates a best of breed approach. So I still think that we are in the best of breed uh, approach, but you did see at least one turn in consolidation. Um, and you also saw a one turn into people realizing that clearly CRM is not the end all of sales, that you need more. And the first thing you needed more of was data, right? You needed more sort of contact info or charts um, information about your your prospective buyers and and you know there's a lot of companies that came to the space and zoominfo created a great consolidation play there and then you know you know it's now, now a vibrant public company but all the other pieces that were in the stack are now getting consolidated to and to some degree or specialized so for instance when we came into the market there was a tool for pretty much every modality of communication so there was an email sort of template and follow up tool there was a uh, there was a, a dialer Version, you know, that either did auto dialing or power dialing, and you know there were calendar appointment tools, and then were like you know package sending, et cetera, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And each of those had to be bought separately, integrated via CRM, and then you know good luck putting that together. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, we came in and we realized no workflows are you know unified, meaning you know as a customer or as a prospect, you you want to be communicated in the way that you prefer, right? Either you know, via, you know starting with marketing and educated and then moving down to a sales cycle, you want to have a conversation with a rep um, almost right away to brainstorm your problem or any other way, right? You know, via social, etc. So given the reps, the modality of executing their workflows and their playbooks in one place was our singular insight that sort of, you know, displaced a little bit the single point solutions. Um, now, fast forward to today, you know, there's other singular insights. So for instance, there is a singular insight around, you know how do you how you run pipeline? How do you manage pipeline? And how do you forecast pipeline? And mm-hmm. you know that's a singular insight that that Francis Clary is, is after, and that that there is nobody went in there um, from before, and and with you know companies like Clary coming into the space and you know declaring that this is a problem. Now you got momentum and you got energy and you got passion around that particular problem. You know there was another one that just came out of the blue: conversational intelligence. That wasn't a problem before until somebody pointed out. That you know it's better to listen to calls and then coach the rep after that. And now that's a thing. And that's you know evolving and growing and becoming its own thing. The question is at what point would this you know co- solutions collide, right? Because you know, do you want to coach the rep based on information that you had or based on the call that you had, or based on you know, based on whether you are early in the pipeline or late in the pipeline, et cetera? So you will see an evolution of um sort of coaching solutions, if you would, like solutions that you use not only to forecast. To manage, but also to coach. That's going to have all all of it in it. Um, you know, you're gonna you're gonna be seeing solutions like ours that is, you know, in the engagement side, and you're gonna see other entries into the market. You know, Salesforce is not even a player in the market and now; they have a solution in that too. Um, and ZoomInfo even has a, a slight solution there. So you will see sort of like avenues of consolidation coming in as people try to figure out how to run their teams more efficiently, how to coach them in the moment and how to even get ahead of, you know, problems before they happen, right? And that's the holy grail is how do you catch things early enough so you can, you know, you, so you can affect results in the quarter as opposed to, you know, coach it today for next quarter's output. And and I think that there's going to be a lot of, a, a lot more tech and a lot more innovation coming out in that direction.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think I wholeheartedly agree <laughs> as, you know, as buyers become smarter, as, you know, sales ex- has higher expectations and even from you know, from an operations perspective, right? Looking for the best solutions to really help drive, you know, drive efficiency, drive enablement, try it faster, you know, bigger revenue and shorter time. So definitely yeah. see a lot of that.
1: And, and and the things that I, I think that, you know, I, I was talking to another I was talking to another company a couple days ago with, with Terminus about this, this problem is that they are some 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 principled durable um uh, facts that will never change, right? So mm-hmm. companies will always want that deal to come in sooner than later. You see mm-hmm. what I mean? Like nobody wants a deal to come in next quarter. They want it this quarter, right. you know? So velocity will always, you always need higher velocity. doesn't matter whether you're, you know, I hear a lot of like, no, I'm an enterprise shop. I'm okay if you deals, you know, you know, take time to come in. I'm like, no, you're not okay. You want the deal <laughs> right now. If you okay. have a choice, you will take the revenue right now, not tomorrow, today. <laughs> Um, so velocity will always be something people want uh the other thing is you will you will want ramp you know faster ramping reps nobody will say you know i really want my rep to ramp in in, in nine months you know if you can take a rep ramp rep today you will take it right so there's a, <laughs> a, a few like you know things that are sort of like our true north that should be like our principles of operation we will always want a faster deal you know money today is better than money tomorrow uh, you know capacity productive capacity today is better than productive capacity tomorrow and and um and so we should take that and use that as our as our true north of what is what are the things that are going to influence the market in that direction? Um, so, you know, finding out earlier, you know, what's wrong with your pipeline, what's wrong with your rep, what's wrong with your messaging, what's wrong with your positioning, what's wrong with your persona, it's better than finding out later. So whoever develops something that gives you earlier signals is going to have an advantage over everybody else. That's you know I mean? right.
0: Yep. That makes complete sense. That's right. So I guess one of the things I wanted to talk about also, you know, as you're talking about sort of what's happening in the market is, you know, we've we've all been impacted by COVID, right, in the global pandemic, you know, both from a business perspective, as well as from a personal perspective, um, you know, for outreach and for its customers, you know, with sales teams working outside of the office, I would guess that an AI powered, you know, sales engagement platform like outreach has become more and more, right, of a must have. Rather than a nice to have, so how have you seen um, this really impact your business and your customers? And also, you know, as other companies, including your own, you know, look at forward into twenty twenty one. You know, what are some of the lessons learned or things that you might do differently next year?
1: Yeah, no, that's a, that, that is the, the question of the moment, um, and I'm, I'm I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. But the number one problem of COVID is outside of the human tragedy and, you know, the mishandling of it is the amount of uncertainty that it has created. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and it hasn't helped the fact that, that, you know, we can't even agree with ourselves of what is and what isn't, you know, as a, as a, as a country, we can't even agree to wear masks or or whether masks are useful (laughs) or whether COVID is, you know, is real. So there is this, this sort of like, you know, um, this dismissal of, of facts and inability to get behind sort of principles is is hurting, you know, our speed by which we're going to get out of it. And this confusion is what creates, you know, is what stalls deals. You know, can you hire another rep or can you not hire another rep? Like, are you, you know, when, I, when COVID hit, and, and I'm curious to hear your, 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 from your side, but when COVID hit, every BC panicked. And every VC started calling their companies and being like, all right, so where are you? Where is your pipeline? How much money do you have in the in the bank?"
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: you know, the first wave of calls is like, you know, having two years of cash is than you having one year of cash in the in the bank. And then the week after was having three years of cash is than you having two years of cash. <laughs> like, where does it end? You know, what I mean, like I'm not the central bank. I only have enough cash <laughs> to, to you know to operate my business, you know, until when, until the next milestone. But I'm not sitting around hoarding it, and so. You know, there was a lot of, and then that question turned into like, all right, so how big are you going to be the layoffs? Is it, is it going to be 10, 20, 30% of staff? And, and I'm like, you know, how about none? You know, we need everybody. We need all hands on deck right now. Like if anything else, you know, we need more people. We need cooler heads. We need, you know, more empathy towards our, our customers and prospects that are being hit hard um, and not less. So the... Um, The tendency of overreacting and the lack of good information and true north during this pandemic has been the biggest problem through it. Um, And and I I feel like pipelines were impacted because of this lack of certainty. Um, What that has done in my mind is that it has forced people to sort of like um, get leaner faster. So, you know, you heard, you probably heard this metric that even though, you know, there's a lot of new innovation and digital transformation happening. But, you know, from a GDP perspective, you're not seeing a big bump in productivity. Kind of productivity is kind of like, you know, moving up in, in the right direction, but it's not being transformed by the web. The interesting thing is that, you know, we're not hiring as fast. Some, some people are cutting um, are cutting uh, headcount, but you are seeing roughly maintained levels of production. So we mm-hmm. are increasing productivity, but we're just doing it the wrong way by letting people go. Um, and, and, and instead of, you know, creating more jobs and being aggressive about, you know, growth. So I, I think two, two points come out of that. One is that, you know, sales will never be the same. I don't think that you're going to see this, you know, large splurges, you know, long deal cycles with, you know, expensive dinners and golf outings and whatnot to close a deal. I think that we're going to keep a tie eye on you know, close eye on, on T&E and we're going to be getting a lot more efficient going forward. And how we drive, you know, new revenue and expansion revenue, um, and I, th- I think the second thing is that um, you, as a as a seller, are going to get your you're gonna get your buy you get you're gonna get you to know your buyer a lot better. I think one of the things that COVID has done is is actually in a weird way bring us closer together. Because when you're in Zoom, you know your background as we noticed when we started the conversation <laughs> is home. Oh, you know what I mean? And you start conversation with like, you know, what is what is that you know DJ equipment doing behind? <laughs> That's right. you, know, and all of that, we, you know, I just know a fact about you that I didn't know before. So, you know, that level of getting people to know at the personal uh, in the personal realm, it's important and it's going to transform sales. And I think in a positive way. So you're going to see a lot less of this sort of like transactional, you know, spray and pray, you know, get generate pipeline, close the pipeline. It's going to be about, you know, how are we doing with Rosaline and what what is she up to and how is her family holding together and you know can we help? You know, I mean, there's going to be this new level of empathy that we have brought together just because of what COVID made us go through. So anyway. Yeah, no, that's
0: that's that's amazing. I think that's um, completely true. I don't think that we're going to come out on the other end, you know, as we look at, um, you know, with the same type of structure, because even as we're looking at planning, right, and thinking about sort of what what our segmentation looks like, what our territories look like, you know, it is a different um It's a different perspective on how to organize and how to structure our sales team kind of in this new model of selling. Um, You talked a little bit about, you know, the buyers and about being, you know, different um, relationship with your customers. But, you know, if you think about on the topic of, of customers, you know, I've heard you say in the past that, you know, you take a customer, you solve their problem right? Then you move on to the next and the next. So I think one of the areas that I've seen you've really excelled at, at being is really being a true partner, right? To your customers. You know, I've obviously as a customer have experienced that personally, but I've also heard very similar feedback from others. Um, Can you share a little bit about sort of what your philosophy is around, you know, really driving customer success? Because that's one of the things that, you know, uh, with this pandemic, I think all organizations have really shifted to, you know, less about obviously revenue is still important, but less about, you know, going out and getting new customers versus really, you know, at Clary, we talk about, you know, bear hugging our customers, right? And really looking to your customers and helping them be successful and seeing how they're doing and what value, you know, that we can, um, we can bring to help them be successful and make it through the pandemic successfully as well. So what is sort of your philosophy around, you know, driving customer success, driving customer value, and how do you see that sort of has contributed to your overall revenue acceleration?
1: Yeah, thank you. thank you for that question. So, the for us, our customers were what saved us as a company, meaning the 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 the, the incredible blessing of finding you know the workflow solution to our workflow problem early on, and having people suspend this belief that the fact that there's four co-founders in a very tiny office in Seattle, you know. Running multi-million-dollar revenue engine and letting us help is something that you know to this day I, I cannot forget and I cannot forget our early customers I cannot forget our early traction with them you know people who sort of this you know who believed our vision who who saw who, who we were as people and what we were trying to do and signed up early like I don't know Lars Nielsen back when he was at Cladera, he's now at Snowflake um, and there's a few more like that who who um, who came in early and and bought. The, you know a, a, a relatively rough product that had very big promise and and where sort of these sign partners with us so for me the customer obsession is beyond you know uh, a slogan and and beyond a value is is what I personally and what we as the founder team and now the entirety of outreach or our you know our existence do and not only the fact that they bought the early product but the fact that you know, they came back to us and, and they confided to us their new problems. And and allow us to build not only what outreach was at that point, which was, you know, an outbound email engine to becoming a full workflow engine that included every single modality of communication. And it was a matter of them coming to us and, and saying, Hey Manny, I love what you did here. Um, we got uh you know, we got an inbound to worry about that we would love to start converting and we need to figure out how. Right. And then we get into it, we figure out triggers, we figure out persona assignments, we figure out um you know, the fact that, you know, sometimes a dial is faster than an email, email getting a hold of a particular prospect, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. routing rules and, and, and other, you know, CRM sync rules. And, and, and sort of this, uh, you know, earning your customer's trust to the point in which they confide to you their their, their problems is, is such a gift because people don't come, people, you know, it's very hard for somebody to talk about their problems. They usually talk about their wins and how great they're doing, how I'm killing it, you know, um, <laughs> shop. It's very hard for them to say, "Yeah, this sucked," and and I wish you can help me. You know, what I mean, right. so it takes it takes you to get to that level of trust. And and the second piece is that for me, customer obsession is not just about getting to the level of trust where people are telling you their problems. It's when you get so good that you're anticipating the problems. Mm-hmm. You're seeing around corners on their on their behalf when they you know it is is sitting down with them and redefining what they think is success. You know, many people will come out to you. With a, a you know a definition of what success looks like, but if you are a true partner, you'll be like You're, you know these two things. I see eye to eye. This other thing, let me give you a perspective that I learned from these other two customers who had the same problem, and they re- redefine success in this other way, and they may work better for you. You see what I mean? Yeah. And, and the ability to 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 see around corners and to help be a thought partner with your customers is in my mind nirvana, and that is what I get out of bed for. You know what I mean? It's my why. And, and, and to do that at scale and to do that for so many people is really what, you know, what gives me energy and, you know, uh, and you can only do this on energy. There's nothing else.
0: (laughs) So, you know, I, I guess aside from the product and the customer focus, you know, outreach as I've shared with you and I shared with you that I'm such a fan girl, but outreach has an amazing brand, right. Especially for someone looking in from the outside, you know, from my perspective, there's a couple of reasons why. One is obviously the caliber of talent that you have within your organization, right? You have folks who are the leading experts in their space, but the other reasons I believe are related to one, the culture, right? That you have built at outreach and two, the champion that you are right as a leader. So, I'd like to dig into a little bit about the culture first, right? Mm -hmm. So as you know, you know, I've been in go-to-market operations leadership for 20 years now. And for that entire time, I was also a mother. I started out with two and then later added in another one. And so I've definitely had to juggle, you know, work and career and home, family. And, you know, obviously and it's been up-leveled with the pandemic and everybody being at home. And you, you know, have been a big believer, right, in supporting working parents, as a father of three yourself, yep. you know, you, you have firsthand experience, right? Yep. At trying to find harmony in work and home, you know, as you're building your company, you're building your family, you know, can you tell me about the culture that you've built at Outreach really to help your team be successful? And please include the overnight doula stipend because I'm super jealous. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, yeah, thanks for that. Um, so the, the culture of Outreach... Is that there's two ways to sort of define core culture and, and core values. You, you you either write your core values as the company you want to become and you do it sort of prospectively, or you or you or you write down the core values as the company you want to as, as sort of the values that you want to keep fixed as everything else changes and you grow. And you do that um, prospectively, meaning you look back at who you are and, and what got you there, and you wanna make sure that as you as you Become bigger and more people come in that you don't lose that that true north, mm-hmm. and and we did the latter meaning we we when we sat down with when we were about 50 people we wrote down our core values, and our core values really reflected who the core founding team were as people and and what got us to where we were and what are the things that we hold sacred, and there's a few you know we have a, a, a very similar core values as most companies do but there's a few that are a little quirky right one of them is is called having your back. That's a core value here. I mean, you have to have somebody else's back, and, and that doesn't mean that you know I'm going to allow sloppy work or inattentiveness you know, to, to a customer, etc. But what that means is that I'm going to let you, you know, go out on a limb and do something, you know, new, something crazy, you know, explore, you know, experiment. And I'm also going to have your back when 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 you need me when you when 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 you need it at home. You know, mm-hmm. Gordon, my co-founder, had you know their first kid um, as we were pivoting we had nothing. We didn't even have health insurance. We didn't have, um, we didn't have the doula service. We didn't have anything. And there's a, there's a photo that I love, you know, where he is patching up a piece of, you know, a piece of code from a customer with, uh, with his baby and in his lap in the middle of the night. <laughs> you know I mean? I mean? Typing with one hand and, and with a bottle in the other um, as a father. And and I feel like we all have that sort of memory of, you know, we doing one thing for, for love and the other thing for love. It's kind of our two kids. And, and, you know, our first instinct when we saw that is, you know, we never want anyone to go through it. Now we have money. Now we have momentum. Now we have created a category for everybody else. We have customers. So how do we prevent, you know, what we had to go through from the, you know, from the rest of our, our team members. Um, and, and and I think that has to do with the fact that, you know, as, as four co-founders, we have to be a little bit more egalitarian than if it was just like Manny with one good idea and, and, you know, hiring a bunch of other people, because I have to be like, I have to treat them like my family. And, the way you treat family is that so you want to make sure that they're okay, that they're okay at home, that they're okay mentally, and that they show up with, to work with, you know, strength, with energy and without worries. And, you know, i much rather have, you know, and, and when we hire, we hire the full human. So I can't tell you to like leave your personal problems at home and you show up and like deliver the work because you're going to come home, you're going to come to work and you're going to be, you're not going to be a hundred percent. So that's, those were the guiding principles of sort of like, you know, how do we build a culture of, of inclusion that allows everybody to be their best self at work and, uh, and, and at home. Um, and, you know, that's where the doula program is. You know, I had, I had my, my daughter uh, Mercedes um, uh, about the second year of outreach, you know, after, after racing series A and, and it was really hard because I still wanted to be present at work and I had a lot of, yeah, a, lot, a lot, going on. And, and I, I didn't get any sleep because, you know, mm-hmm. babies just don't sleep well. You know? <laughs> and And we had this idea of like, you know, is there a thing as a night doula? and it turns out there is. And 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 once we after you know we hired her, and the, the world just changed. I was so much more productive, even though I was at home and 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 uh, helping out. Um, so I was like, if I have this, why wouldn't everybody have it? And and then so that was the the impetus of it. And then and then the the sort of the the side effect of that was that you know most people are not like me. Most people are you know. Usually it is mothers that bear the brunt of the child rearing. Um, and by by bringing out this benefit, we were able to remove a blocker for for uh, young women who want to become mothers at some point to join outreach. and that drove you know the amount of women that we can bring into the team. Now those women are you know across the board, your managers and VPs and just high performing individuals and leaders that we build from scratch. And, and I think that every great company needs to have a point of view as to what kind of culture, what kind of, uh, what's the makeup of that company early on. And if you don't have a point of view, it will end up, you know, being whatever every other tech company is, which is, you know, mostly white male dominated. Um, but if, if you sort out early to decide, like, who are you going to be and the kind of people you want to attract, then, you know, when you fast forward, you know, three, four, five X the number of people, that, that growth will reflect your point of view that you had early. So, for instance, we are 40-60 women. 40% of our workforce is women, 6 percent is men, which is much better than anything else in tech, but we're not done yet. Like we want to get to 50-50 because that's what the world looks like. And we should not be different, any different than America, given that we're a US company. So um, I recommend to every leader to take a point of view of, you know, don't let you know diversity, inclusion, or you know, be a, a side show. Don't let culture happen to them. It's something that you design. And you actively curate uh, as, as it evolves and as you grow.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, that actually leads me to sort of w- one of the other reasons I really was excited to have you on the, sh- on the podcast too and to be able to speak to you is really, you know, I personally think what's one of the biggest contributions to how amazing Outreach's brand is, is how active you are, right? As a CEO and being a champion of diversity and inclusion, you know, you talked about it a little bit, but, you know, specifically really just the outward support that you have for minorities, um, especially immigrants and women, right? As you mentioned in tech, you know, for somebody like me, you know, being a minority female executive in tech, right. And especially in revenue, oftentimes, you know, I'm the only, Woman in the room, or I'm the only minority, or you know I'm the only mom, right? Or yep. sometimes all of the above, right? And, and, <laughs> and, and right, and you know, honestly, it's like I've never really thought about it too much. Like early on in my career, um, you know, as I was growing my career, but definitely, you know, maybe I was just, you know, maybe it was something to be considered, and I was just unaware, um, or maybe just naive about it. Um, you've, you've obviously, you know, shared your story about growing up in Ecuador, you know, being an immigrant here in the United States, you know, and, you know, really building a company as you've shared is is really a great makeup, right, of very diverse, very inclusive, especially in tech in any company, but especially in technology. So can you share sort of a little bit maybe about how your upbringing and sort of your own personal experiences have really helped shape this culture that you've built?
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. The um, culture is a is a again is a is a, is a design principle um, that that you that you as a leader are responsible for. As, it's the one thing that you can design that that um, that will scale over time. the The main thing for us, and this is where I divert with other CEOs, is that I don't think that culture is fixed. Matter of fact, when you use the word he, you know, you interview somebody and you say this person was not a cultural fit. I, I take that sometimes to mean that you're driving and is striving for homogeneity as opposed to diversity. And that's a very dangerous path to be. Whereas if you assume that the culture will change over time and everybody who joins the company brings in another flavor and you think of your culture as a soup, like a stew or like a soup, where everybody brings a flavor and the flavor evolves over time to become more complex, more nuanced, more subtle. Um, then, then you have a different attitude towards culture. Uh, I'm of the latter camp that I, we, you know, we have our core values, and those are not, you know, you can't validate those. But, you know, at 600, we're a different culture than we were at, at at 50, because we just have more people of different walks of life, and that should be celebrated. Because, and and then the question is, is you know, for us, is how daring can we be to push the envelope and bring people who are not sort of out of central casting into our fold, and and you know, how much mistakes are we going to tolerate, and how much risk are we going to take in, on, on, on behalf of diversity and on behalf of inclusion? And that's, a, again, a design principle that every leader should take on and decide what is their principle of design. Our design principle is that, for me personally, I grew up in a very diverse environment. Uh, Ecuador is, is a country of many different cultures and people that came in as immigrants or were there natively, and the result is a, is a very broad palette colors and that's how I feel comfortable. Homogeneity makes me nervous. You see what I mean? Like I don't feel comfortable. And I and I put this out in the, in another podcast in that actually when I was talking to CNBC that it took me a while when I was fundraising, especially when you come and pitch in in partner meetings, you know, this long mahogany tables full of white faces looking at you.
0: Mm-hmm. I
1: just don't feel comfortable in that environment because I didn't grow up there. You see what I mean? So yeah. I can take a couple and like and, and be cool with it, but when it's a whole room full of that, I'm like, you know, I, I just don't, you know, I have to take a deep breath and sort of calm myself down. So for me, the design principle is one in which, A, it needs to reflect the makeup of this country that has adopted me, which is very diverse. And B, it needs to reflect, you know, the, the thing that, that makes me comfortable uh, as a leader. And uh, me again, my design principle as a leader is that I want a lot of homogeneity. I want a lot of color. I want a lot of ideas. I want a lot of you know different belief, different walks of life. And, and I and I and, and and I believe that if if you if you marry that with excellence and accountability, you get wonderful performance in in a place that is both loving, inclusive, belonging, and high performing. I don't think that those are by any means at all. Uh, exclusive, mutually exclusive from each other. So that's how I
0: think about it. Oh, Manny, I love that. I love that so much. I'm going to be quoting that. <laughs> I'm such a fan and just really enjoy speaking with you. Um, I know, but I also want to be cognizant of your time. So I guess pivoting... Um, pivoting back to revenue. Let's go back there because again, I could spend all day talking to about culture. Um, so pivoting back to revenue, you know, as I think about the revenue engine and, you know, this podcast, right. I really hope others will be able to learn how to accelerate revenue growth and really power that revenue engine. So yep. I, I, guess what are the, I and mean, from your perspective, are there any things that, you know, is there one or two things that maybe you wish that you knew earlier or maybe you would have do, done differently, right? If you could, you know, hit the reset button and do it all over again.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, and, and, and I think you you will understand this. I I wish that I would have spent more time thinking about revenue operations as opposed to results. Um, you can fake it until you make it all the way to 10 million. Sometimes even all the way to 50 million by breaking a lot of glass and doing a lot of things that are unsustainable. Um, and as an entrepreneur, your job is to make sure that the company is set up for the next stage, not to just get to the current stage. You see what I mean? It's kind of like a great pool player that sets up the shop in such a way that you're the next two shots the yeah, for you, mm-hmm. or a great great chess player. And I didn't really uh, grok that in the early days. The early days was just go, 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 deliver the numbers, deliver the goods, you know, you know you know post good numbers to on the board and, and 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 you know raise more money do it again et cetera as opposed to you know sitting back and and figure out you know to, you know if once we get to 200 or a hundred million dollars in AR et etc you know what does a revenue makeup look like and what are the, what are the levers of growth and you know and then work back to today and then figure out what does your operations look like to get there Right. And, and if we would have done that, I think we would have saved ourselves, A, a lot of, we would have grown faster, actually, one. B, we would have saved ourselves quite a bit of, of turnover in our sales team um, that was relatively unnecessary because it came from a point of, like, you know, hire more of the same as opposed to, you know, have a design principle of, like, look, we want to be, I don't know, 25% enterprise. Um, or we want to have, I don't know, pick a number, 200, 300, $100,000 accounts $100, account by three years. You know, and those look like, you know, more like corporate and then they're land and expand. And this is the motion and this is the kind of, you know, um, uh, enablement that you need. This is kind of the rep that, you know, responds well to that and then go build that out. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't do that. I was more just deliver the numbers in any way I can. And it was only now that I find myself sort of, you know, looking back at that operational debt and untangling it. And this is why you have people like Harish and, and Anna sort of like helping us, you know, professionalize that part of the operation and it's literally just to you know set the, set the platform for better, better bigger growth. Um, and, and it's not just growth for old sake, it's, it's high quality high octane kind of growth, meaning the growth that then once you set it up, it begins more growth. You know what I mean? Like once you set up a, a, a land, you have the land the, the expand teed up, you have the upsell teed up, you have the cross sell teed up, you have the renewal teed up because of the way that you landed that account. So I, I wish I, I, I had known all that before before I started scaling the company,
0: that's awesome, and that is a perfect segue and perfect kind of uh, way to wrap up because um, obviously, you know, I've been on my soapbox all year about you know all twenty twenty about revenue operations and how important it is to really define your operation process and build the infrastructure. Right to support your revenue um, process to help it scale right efficiently Absolutely. and effectively. Um, and I do agree. A lot of companies are very focused on you know just get it done early on, and then at some point it's time to bring in operations and start to structure and you know be able to build some scalability and repeatability in your processes.
1: Absolutely. Like I wish I wish BCs would ask that more as opposed to like what's your number?
0: <laughs> yeah. You know what is your <laughs>
1: revenue? Who is your revenue operations, and what's your plan? You see, I mean, because that is a precursor of not this year's number, but the next 10 years of numbers.
0: Right. You know I mean? Exactly. Well, great. Um. So thank you so much for joining me. Um. I have just, you know, I've, I've loved having this conversation with you. I, so appreciate all of your insights and just, um, you know, getting to know some of your background more. Um, But but as we wrap up, you know, and before I let you go, um, you're a very open book (laughs) about, you know, (laughs) your company, about your, your background, your personality, which, you know, I, I really appreciate, but is there, is there like one thing about you about one thing about Manny Medina that, you know, others might be surprised to learn? Um.
1: So remember that uh, there's a movie called Ju- I think it's called Julie and Julie uh-huh,
0: about yep. about the um, cooking like the, the cooking.
1: Yep, I I did that. I I swear I lived that movie a year before the movie came out, and <laughs> and, and when I tell people the story, I be like of course you did. Like you watched the movie and you got excited and you did it just like the rest of us. I'm like no 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 no. I I read out a review <laughs> about the about the book in the New York Times and I went and bought a used book that must have been like the second edition. Mm-hmm. Of the uh, uh, you know of the of French cooking the art of French cooking and I cooked the entire thing, so I I cooked <laughs> that entire Ju- Julie, Julia Julia Charles book be- Julia and Julia uh, I, I cooked the entire Julia Child's book before the movie before it was cool, um, not that many people know that.
0: Oh, that's amazing! So, so you have a love for cooking, or was I, lo- it I, lo- that- I
1: love cooking? I love it. It comes from both sides. One is that my. My grandmother and, and will always kick me out of the kitchen. So I always wonder <laughs> why, you know, how, how how does it work? You know, what I mean. So I always have this this you know enormous drive to really get into the kitchen and, and, and do my own tricks. Um, and two, then, then then you know after cooking French food, you, you never go back. So I, I I love cooking and I love cooking Ecuadorian food and French food.
0: <laughs> well, definitely, that was a surprise to me. But I uh, I appreciate that. And I, I love that. Um, so thank you again, Manny, for being on the podcast. I really do appreciate your time and just really appreciate the opportunity to learn more about outreach and about you and your journey.
1: Thank you so much. It was a pleasure.